Welcome to episode number six of Monopoly's Killed My Hometown. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. In this podcast, again, I'm just, I'm exploring how our decision to change our competition laws in the 1980s has led to the decline of small towns and small businesses by looking at my experiences growing up and moving back to Amherst, Nova Scotia. Because ultimately, I want our small businesses, our small towns and people to have more control and agency over their own lives and futures. Because when we are governed by corporations headquarters elsewhere, we can lose control over our own communities and lives and ultimately lose hope. And I want to prevent that from happening or continuing to happen. This episode's going to be a little bit different. Uh, This is your first time listening. In the first episode, I got into why I identified that this was a problem. In the second episode, I kind of looked at where we are with the current state of our competition policy and our competition law. And then in the third episode, I looked at where we started, an old article from the 1910s written by William Lyon Mackenzie King. And in episode four and five, I looked at an article written by Peter C. Newman about the Combines investigators. And this article was written in the 1950s. So I've kind of covered a broad range so far. Uh, In this episode, I want to do a few different things. One, I want to introduce a new organization that I've one of the co-founders of, the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project. Second, I want to update you on some more information I've learned about our penalties for abuse of dominance uh, and changes that were introduced in the Budget Act. Third, I want to kind of talk about the Rogers Shaw merger, where it's going and what's kind of happening there. And then fourth, I am going to circle back to an article I actually wrote talking about the style and type of competition that I envision and what I want to see moving forward. So it's a little bit different. So again, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode moving forward. All right, let's get down to it. The Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project. This is a think tank that I've helped co-found with Keldon Bester and Robin Chabon. So Keldon and Robin are, we'll say, the policy experts out of the three of us. And they've written a lot about and talked a lot about really sort of a progressive take on competition law and our competition policy. And I've talked with them for probably about a year, a little bit more than that. And they asked me to join as a co-founder for CAMP, the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project, a few months ago. So Robin is co-founder of CAMP, co-founder and senior economist at Vivic Research, and a research associate at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. They were named a winner of the Globe and Mail's Report on Business 2021 Changemakers Award and are a former officer at the Competition Bureau. Robin's also written many op-eds in the Globe and Mail, National Post, and Robin, through her advocacy, through op-eds and speaking, was one of the voices that really has sort of pushed for the upcoming review of the Competition Act. Keldon Bester is a co-founder, he's a CG fellow, and an independent consultant and researcher. Keldon's working on issues of competition and monopoly power in Canada. Uh, He has also worked as a special advisor at the Competition Bureau and as a fellow at the Open Markets Institute in the U.S. So our vision for CAMP is to do research, to help organizations, to teach and educate, 
on the issues caused by monopoly power in Canada. One of the things we're going to do in the short term, uh, we have lots of goals and plans and ideas for the long term, but in the short term, with the upcoming review of the Competition Act, we will be able to and we'll be willing to help organizations craft submissions for the review, or even before that, we can help talk with organizations and explain why and how competition policy in the Competition Act impacts your organization and what your goals are. So you can find us online at antimonopoly.ca. You can also find us on Twitter as well. And I will update as this is coming along. We are planning an online launch event sometime in July to introduce the three of us some more. And we're looking at having some great speakers come in and help educate on the anti-monopoly movement. So sign up for my newsletter so you make sure that you get an update on when that event is coming. The second thing I wanted to talk about is some changes to the Competition Act that were included in the 2022 federal budget. I didn't actually realize that you could do this, like change other acts through the budget, but I guess you can. And so I, my further reading and learning is that once the budget is passed, most of the changes to the Competition Act will come into force. Some will be delayed for about a year. Uh, we'll get into that a bit more specific after. But two big things I kind of want to bring up that were changed in it. First big change that came from this is to include language banning wage fixing and no poach agreements. So the wage fixing came out of like, I remember at the start of the pandemic 2020, the major grocery chains brought in hero pay for the cashiers that were working and they all seemed to do it like right at about the same time. And it was brought in to reward them because keeping us fed and so that we could stay home and keep you know, the grocery store workers were essential workers, still are essential workers. I also remember it was like three, four, five months into it, all of a sudden, uh, we don't want to do this anymore. And then they all, more or less at the same time, stopped paying the quote unquote hero pay. The pandemic's nowhere near being over and the hero pay was cut off within the first three, four, five months of it. And here we are, you know, more than two years later, the pandemic's still going on, but they're not. They don't deserve the hero pay anymore. So that's where this came from. The second big change was to increase the financial penalties that can be applied when a company is found to have conducted anti-competitive acts under the abuse of dominance provisions. So before the maximum penalty could be $10 million for a first order and $15 million thereafter, they're being updated that the penalty would be the larger of the current penalties or three times the value of the benefit derived from the conduct. And this is the caveat that will be up for debate and legal parsing and all that sort of stuff. If that amount can be reasonably determined or 3% of the corporation's annual worldwide gross revenues. So this is a big start because I think in episode two, I was talking about mergers and their abuse of dominance and some of the penalties. And at $10 million for some of the largest companies in the world, those penalties can just be seen as a cost of doing business. You get into three times the benefit of what you do, then the penalty can become a deterrence or even more, if you can't figure that out, just 3% of the worldwide revenue. Okay, you're talking serious money now. That changes the calculation. Like that changes it. So it's not necessarily a cost of doing business. That actually has some serious penalties and can seriously hurt somebody's pocketbook. Okay, the third thing I kind of want to update everybody on is the Roger Shaw merger. Like I think I mentioned before, the Competition Bureau is trying to block the merger 
and has applied to the competition tribunal to hear the case. So the competition bureau has filed their, let's just say, sort of brief on why they think it should be blocked. And the tribunal has released their schedule on how this process will play out. So it started now. I read in today's, I think, Globe and Mail, Roger Shaw and the Competition Bureau are heading to a mediation, to a mediator, to see if a deal can be reached first. We'll see what happens from there. So with the announced schedule, mediation, they say, should happen first part of July, July 4th and 5th. If that doesn't go, then there's lots of time to submit documents. That's happening all over the summer. Then in the September, we're starting to hear motions about discovery and getting into discovery. And then ultimately this moves towards hearings happening in November and into December. December 8th, they're saying written arguments. And then December 13th and 14th, there will be oral arguments. And then the hearings and the oral arguments will shift. If there's less hearings, they'll move up. So it looks like this is going to be going into the end of the year. Probably get a decision or announcement, you know, first part of 2023. So could be interesting. I think there'll be a lot of stuff that comes out during these hearings and these motions. And I don't think the Competition Bureau is backing down at this point. Uh, I'd like to read the last paragraph from the Competition Bureau's submission on why the merger should be blocked. So I'll put a link to the whole thing if you ever, if you want to go in and read it. But here's the last paragraph from it. Furthermore, the increase in prices or qualitative effects will result in a transfer of wealth from low and moderate income groups in society to the respondents whose shareholders include ultra-rich members of the family ownership groups of these companies. Increased profits will also be paid to non-Canadian investors. These effects are socially adverse and otherwise must be given weight against any efficiencies that may arise. As a result, the cognizable efficiencies of the proposed transaction, if any, are not greater than or would offset its anti-competitive effects. So to me, those don't sound like words coming from the government agency that's going to back down. There's also, we're starting to get back into that sort of morality to all of this that I talked about in some of the original ones, right? Like acknowledging that this will just transfer money from, you know, like they said, low and moderate income groups to the ultra rich. They didn't quite apply like the evilness or some of those words that, you know, existed in previous reports, but it's, it's starting to creep back in. I like it. And so the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about is, like I said, an article that I wrote. I'll put a link to this. It's up on smalltownsuccess.ca website. But I want to share my thinking. Like we talk a lot about competition in the competition law and competition policy. But I want to describe more about how I think about the type of competition we want. Because like for me, I grew up playing, you know, hockey, baseball, running track, like doing sports and competing in sports. And I still watch sports and I still love that kind of competition, but that's not the same kind of competition that I think the Competition Act needs to protect. And the reason that I think the sports examples fails when we get to this is in sports, we put the act of competition first for the sake of competing. Like, what's the impact of this competition on anybody else in society? Because there also really isn't any. What is the end point for business? Right? How do you know you won? Like, if you're playing a game of hockey or baseball or soccer or curling or football or running a race, there is a defined endpoint. At the end, somebody wins or loses, you know, or in the regular season, there's a draw or a tie, but there is a defined endpoint with a specific goal. And you could maybe argue that there is for businesses, but 
Really, for businesses, there's no end point. The goal is to continue playing the game. But if we extend it further out, how does that framework apply to like a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a university or a service club? You know, how does, I'll pick Dalhousie University win? And what does Dalhousie University win? Or even like taking Amherst, does the Lions Club compete against the Y Service Club? If so, how does how does the Lions Club beat the Y Club? Does Little League Baseball compete against whatever, soccer? And how does one of them win? But they don't win. They're not going to win that way or another, or they shouldn't be that way because we don't want them to compete for the sake of competing to beat each other, which is the sports framework. So the framework that I like to use when I think about, okay, what kind of competition we want is like a forest or any other sort of natural ecosystem. So I'm going to use, I'm going to talk about a forest, but I mean, this can apply to anything like a, a lake, a jungle, a pond, a river, uh, the tundra, any sort of natural ecosystem, because each one of these ecosystems is full of small individual competitions. So in the forest, plants compete for sunlight and other nutrients. You know, animals compete for food and shelter. Prey compete against competitors, right? There are winners and losers in all these competitions, right? So like one example I got was a mouse that is slightly faster than another mouse avoids the hawk's claws and survives. The male bird with brighter feathers attracts a stronger female who then have stronger offspring. In each one of these competitions are healthy and important because they strengthen each individual piece and portion of the whole ecosystem, which makes the whole thing stronger on its own. And the thing is in the forest, every animal, plant, fungi, everything in the forest depends on each other for the overall health of the whole ecosystem, right? And to me, when I look at it, a healthy forest is one that is in balance. And it's in balance, and it also allows equal opportunity for all parts of the ecosystem to gain resources. It doesn't give resources to everybody equally. It's not like that, but it, it makes sure everything in the forest has an equal chance. And everything in the forest also plays a key role in trying to keep the forest in balance. Because a forest that's out of balance is an unhealthy forest. For example, like a forest, an example I used here, a forest overrun with mice is unhealthy. Eventually that overpopulation of mice will harm everybody else in the forest, right? Like too many mice will then eat too many plants, which could then affect the population of say chipmunks or squirrels because they don't, they're not able to get the same food that they need. Then that cuts down the amount of food available for chipmunks and squirrels predators. This is a very simplified example, but you can think through how this works. And there will be ripple effects all through the forest, eventually harming everybody across, all because there became too many mice at the beginning. But the thing is, like a natural ecosystem that's allowed to exist has developed mechanisms to strive to come back into balance. Because that's the other thing is, like a forest doesn't hit and maintain and keep balance. It's always swinging. It's always moving in and out of balance, but it has mechanisms when it goes too far one way to come back towards balance. And it may only hit that balance level for a short period of time and then carry on. But for example, like let's get back to the mice. So some of the things that could happen is the overpopulation of mice will eat plants and eat food faster than the plants can reproduce. 
So eventually, the stronger mice will take over and the weaker mice will become more prey for predators. And then as the population of mice increases, population of the predators will also increase until the increase in predators and the decrease in food is going to cause the population of mice to decrease, to come back to a sustainable level so that it doesn't have a huge negative impact across the whole forest and whole ecosystem. But then at that point, when the mice population's back, there's gonna be fewer plants and more predators. So the same sort of events will happen there. There'll be fewer mice eating plants, so then the plants will regrow to come back in line. And then there will be more predators, but not enough food for them. So weaker predators will start dying off so, till it all comes back into balance. And then it's gonna play over again. That's just, that's how an ecosystem works is that it's always trying to come back to balance. And that's where it gets different between the ecosystem and sort of the forest in our communities is in the ecosystem in the forest, there are sort of natural laws that dictate coming back into balance, right? That everything sort of moves back towards balance. And that's how I see our competition law and our competition policy and competition act is our main law to move our communities back into balance when corporations and businesses amass too much power. In my view, the Competition Act is not to prevent competition, right? It's not there to prevent the two mice from competing for the food or the two foxes to competing for the mouse. And, you know, the faster fox gets the bigger mouse and carries on. It's not to prevent that. It's not to prevent the competition between the two independent grocery stores in town. It's not to prevent competition between two accounting firms. It's not to prevent that competition. It's to prevent one firm from amassing enough power to then change the rules to prevent our communities coming back into balance, right? And that's the biggest difference. In an ecosystem, if a tree grows so big, its canopy blocks out all of the sun, it can't then change the natural laws to prevent other trees from competing with it for, you know, nutrients or the sunlight or anything like that. It's not able to do that, not to anthropomorphize trees, because I mean, they're not ants or anything like that. There's no ant moots happening periodically and around. But I would also think that the trees would have enough sense. The biggest tree would have enough sense that it relies on the health of the community to maintain its own health. It needs the woodpeckers coming in and eating the bugs out of the bark, right? Like businesses need service clubs, businesses need these other things in the communities to make sure the community stays healthy to then turn around and maintain the business's health. I think that the tree would understand that and wouldn't even want to change all the rules because it needs everybody else. It needs the rest of the ecosystem to maintain balance, to maintain its best opportunity for health in the long term. And that's the biggest difference between the ecosystem model and the business model and our community model is I would make the argument that over the last 40 years, you know, since the 1980s, big businesses have amassed enough power and they went in and changed the laws, changed their competition laws, the antitrust laws, changed these laws to benefit themselves at the expense of our communities. And historically, we use our competition laws that when businesses amass too much power, we use these laws to bring that back, to bring our communities back into balance. Because when I look around right now, I look around Amherst, I look around Canada, I look at the US, I look around the whole world, our communities are out of balance. Some people are doing extremely well, and a lot of people are not. We are in an unhealthy community, and we're out of balance. And we need our competition laws and our competition acts to be updated, and we need to enforce them properly to bring ourselves back into balance to have a healthier community, healthier country, healthier society. 
So I'm excited. Please stay in touch because we do have that first review coming this summer and over into the year about our competition policy and our Competition Act. And this is a chance for us to push forward and ask our governments and require our governments to act for us and to help bring us back into balance so that we are all healthier and all stronger. Thanks for listening today. Please subscribe again in your favorite podcast app. I'll be back in a couple more weeks with probably a more regular kind of episode. What are you doing at small town after the movie shows through? A few powerful companies. Main Street is struggling. Monopolies killed my hometown.